Welcome to the pod, everyone. A shout out to SGS. Hey, Rusty, why are we uh, partnering with SGS? Uh, uh, some, some, some good people there. Pretty excited about their sports coaching courses and sports courses. Keen to make them industry ready so when people leave, they're able to go and transfer it to any kind of industries, coaching, teaching, being an analyst, business, whatever it might be. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty exciting times, really. So what's so special about their degree courses that others won't be doing? I think it'll be lots of uh, real good partnerships, uh, opportunities for people to, to get into different contexts and learn and practice. It'll be feel very applied. People will be stretched and supported and will leave you know, ready to just go and thrive in the uh, big old world out there. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Welcome to the pod, everyone. Bit of a, a shout out to SGS who... Uh, Myself and Fletcher are going to do a little bit of work with, um, hopefully make it the uh, most uh, innovative, uh, impactful, effective coaching qualification in the country, industry ready, um, experiential, backed up with all the science and the evidence stuff, um, and just a brief word from them beforehand. SGS College is the home of Bristol's higher education sports programmes. The programmes are designed to develop unique, innovative and creative sports practitioners ready for industry. Do you want to be a coach or teacher of the future? Start your journey here at SGS College and become more than just a graduate. Visit sgscol.ac.uk to apply now. Cool, live on the pod, so reversing things. He's normally doing pods himself. Uh, we've been selected as joint... Uh, head coach with Topsy Ojo for Marua Toje's latest uh, rugby team. We have Ugo Monia. How are you, mate? You well? Yeah, I'm really good, mate. Thanks for having us on. How are you? No, I'm good. I'm very good. I'm cool. And uh, no, really, thanks for coming on. And actually, thanks. You came on. Um, you reached out, come on to one of our coaches' thing on Friday with Aaron Walsh. I'm going to go straight in. What What were your reflections? So just uh, to give people context, a uh, group of coaches from kind of uh, who was there from the Prem, so a bit of Bath, a bit of Saints, a bit of Saracens, a bit of Newcastle, there's a bit of France, I'm not sure whether the Super Guys came on, a bit of Dragons and Aaron Walsh yep. from New Zealand. What were your reflections on it? Um, first of all, I loved it and I guess my purpose for wanting to uh, come on to it and I think since I've retired it's actually allowed me just to open my mind and absorb information and energy from different outlets which I perhaps ignored um, I would have recognized it but ignored it because it was all about Saturday and it was all about what we do and what we can implement as much as we'd acknowledge some of the strengths and weaknesses from oppositions um, and as a pundit it, you have to have a breadth of um, ideas and understanding in the game so I felt like coming on to your podcast webinar would would actually help me um, and I just I just found it fascinating just listening to different coaches from different regions different clubs all talking about the same thing but using different language um, and Aaron Walsh in particular my first takeaway was a selfish one I wish I had someone like him full-time at the club during my career to to have helped me to become more than everything that I achieved because as much as we talk about talent and clubs identify talent I think we neglect the human behind the talent and that's so powerful it's it's the two things I think rugby really neglect one is speed training it's a key cog <laughs> in rugby and the other one's the mind because you don't go through a season or career or a patch without having ups and downs and I think it's so important to manage when players and teams get to the peak as well as when they find themselves in the gutter and you've got to find some level of equilibrium to that and Aaron is some might 
some people might turn their nose up to it. Oh, come on, just, just get on with it, just dig in, and just all those kind of archaic thinking. But you have to develop those personal relationships. You have to develop a trust and a meaning and a reason for being. I always say this in international rugby. When you look at the top five teams in the world, on any given Sunday, anyone could beat anyone. But the thing which I think you need to elevate yourself and your performance levels and your potential achievements is you have to have a reason. It's got to be more than just winning. And we saw that at the World Cup with South Africa. Their reason for being was far greater than anyone else's in the World Cup. And it took them to places um, where other teams just couldn't compete. Um, and it doesn't have to be force-fed. It's got to be organic. It's got to be authentic. And those conversations and the languages, um, and more, more so than anything, um, the thoughts that it provoked within me to go and explore, understand and have conversations is exactly what every team and individual needs to be doing. Nice. And you weren't the only person to ring me after the Aaron Walsh webinar and said, <laughs> I wish I'd had Aaron Walsh when I was playing. In fact, the majority did. Um, I, I, I rang one of the coaches. I rang one of the coaches that was online. I won't mention him because, because there's no need to, but I just rang him. Just uh, There wasn't really a purpose for ringing. I, I had a couple of things, reflections, and he asked a couple of questions. And I wanted to share some things with him. And more than anything, actually, just to chat. And this is someone who I see whenever I'm at, the, whenever, whenever I'm at games. Hi, you know, just raise your eyebrows and you walk past and... Then you commentate on the game, you see him afterwards and, oh, mate, well done today or I'm lucky with that. And that was it. That was my relationship with him. We picked up the phone, we chatted for about 45 minutes, an hour. And I was like, what a great person. Like, what a brilliant <clears throat> human being to be working within this environment. And if you can export your human nature and impart it onto players, they will be better human beings and players. And... I would hate for anyone to, oh, what are you talking about feelings and human beings and all that kind of stuff? Because sometimes we just look at them just as assets and just figures on pitches, but it has to be more than that. And yeah, I, I loved it. Um, I got his number from someone and just said, just, just keep the dialogue open. Like, let's chat. Like it might, it's not, there wasn't an end game to the conversation. It wasn't like, Oh, actually I reckon I can help you or you can do this, but just talk explore like think outside of your own environment and bubble nice and you're you're feeling all my biases for me it is about being a better human being so that's the bit that you know the tech tech stuff i'm i'm of course it's relevant but i just don't think it's as relevant i'm now desperate to work out which coach it was i think i've got an idea but <laughs> it's a self-selecting group anyway so they're all they're all they would they would think like that anyway um yeah my, um, you just thought made me think of my wife, not in a weird way, but um, she, uh, yeah. when she watched uh, Khaleesi talk for the World Cup, she just went, God, I really hope they win the final. Like, she's like, and, and, and often we go, oh, well, South Africa played this forward dominated game and they did this and they did this. And yeah, but I mean, they were wild, weren't they? But they were also really focused and they just had this really big why that was, you know, perhaps the possibility of <clears throat> better connecting a nation um, that was driving them forward. So that's pretty, uh, yeah, that, that would fuel my biases. I'm going to, well, maybe a bit of an intro to kind of you. I should normally do that at the start. And and when, when you mentioned the speed training, I was thinking of your try for the Lions. So you did all right. You played a few times for England. You, you played for the British and Irish Lions. What's the, what's the journey that got you there? Um, slightly unorthodox one. You know, I, I was born in North London, not your typical hunting ground for rugby. Um, and you become, or you want to become, the things which you surround yourselves by. Um, I wanted to play for Arsenal. You know, I wanted to be a footballer. We didn't have rugby pitches. I didn't know what rugby was. I probably couldn't spell it at that time. Um, so I just wanted to play football. It's what we did in my local primary school. That was it. But it's my mum who found a private school called Lord Wandsworth College where I got a foundation scholarship to go there, couldn't afford it otherwise, and I rocked up. So picked up and dumped out of the city into the countryside in a school where I was the only black kid. Um, and it, it was, I, I, remember, I remember my first day, like so clearly my first evening. So we went in, 
all the luggage, everything, because I boarded there. And part of their, I guess, trying to get everyone engaged and get to know pupils were to go out and play sport. It was a brilliant like leveller, isn't it? You know, everyone just starts chatting because you have to talk, don't you, when you're playing team sports. So I went outside and I was like, oh, what, we, we off playing football, are we? They're like, no, 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 like, we, we don't play football here. And I was like, this is the biggest stitch up. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm in the countryside, I'm at school that don't even play the sport, which is my passion. Like, like this is my mum, she clearly doesn't love me, like, fair enough. And I'm boarding, so hey, just get the hint. So I went out, and I think, I think, well, I had a rugby ball, we just chucked that around. And when I say, I mean, I, I did my best to get involved and you have to get involved because you want to make friends. And so rugby's always been my tool to, to make friends and be part of the team. So that was kind of my introduction. And like anything, I think kids, uh, kids love encouragement. Um, and the moment you can latch upon something which you're good at and you get praise for it, you want to invest more into it. And I was quick. I had the raw elements of what it might take to be a, 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 an athlete on a rugby pitch. Um, and and I liked it, and we'd win games, and you'd get your name read out and your team name um, read out in assembly, and it made you feel good, and, you know, whether I liked it or not, I didn't really know, but I liked being mentioned and knowing that I'm representing the school in the right way, and then I guess that just continued, then I got to a point, because I love my athletics as well, I got to a point probably age 16, 17, where I couldn't divide my attention. If I wanted to become... Uh, a rugby player and athlete I just had to go for one and um, I played some games for Harlequins under 19s under 21s and the opportunities I was more led by the opportunities that I got and I got offered a contract by Queens I think I was aged 18 and I just couldn't turn it down I knew in my mind I was going to take a year out to discover um, a sporting passion and this happened to be rugby, but even still, it, it wasn't plain sailing. But because my mum, she, she just wanted me to go to university. She, she's Nigerian. Typically, it's academics, academics, academics. Like rugby just wasn't a thing in our household. So talking about rugby and now I'm going to make a career of it, it was like, nah, <laughs> go to university and actually be something to me. <laughs> so um, I went against my mum's wishes probably for the first and only time um but i'm glad i did um because i've had a lot of fun along the way what uh, what does your mum say about it now she, it's funny because i remember i told her um towards the end of 2014 so i was maybe two or three months into my last contractual season at quinn's and i said i think i'm going to retire so that's early you know the season doesn't finish till may why do you want to retire? I was like, hang on a second, should we just rewind the clock to 14 years ago? You didn't want me to get into this game. Now you don't want me to leave it. So uh, she definitely became a, a massive fan and a huge support. I mean, her decision-making from, from, from early, age 13, to send me to a school, eventually ended up moulding my career, my future, and the things that I've gone on to do. I just Googled Lord's Wandsworth. You've got some reasonable alumni. I don't know how many of them you played with. The JW. Uh, reasonable, yeah. Uh, Charlie, yeah. Henry, uh, England yeah. Sevens, great guy. Pete Richards, uh, 2007 World Cup, and Ryan Wilson, who's captain Scotland. So, doing all right. I think, Ryan, I think Ryan may have got suspended or expelled from the school. He's he's a rascal. I love him. He's, he's a hilarious character. But I remember being in like the fifth form watching Pete Richards at nine and Johnny Wilkinson at ten, and just thinking like, this is nuts. Um, and Johnny, Johnny's one of this, he's one of these annoying people, you know, the, the bigger your profile becomes, the, the the more you achieve, people want to know more. And they're like, are oh, you going to school? What was he like? What was he like? What was he like? And I think they're all, I think most people are interested in the dirt, you know, go on to tell us some like story. What was he like? on like, there's, there's, nothing. Day, must, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing. He was like an A grade student. He was, he was a perfect student. He was played in the first 11 at cricket. He even played basketball. He obviously dominated rugby. But in terms of his habits, which I think can be learnt, but maybe not to Johnny's extreme, because when you're age 16 and your dad's coming in after school and whilst we're messing around, doing whatever, he's 
practice of his kicking, both feet, drop goals, conversions and everything else. There's like, I mean, there's a clear correlation between the work he put in and the things he achieved. Why do you say those habits can be learned? Um, because if you can unlearn habits, I think you can learn them. I think you can get better at things. I think you can become more conscious of the efforts and the things that you need to do. Um, and I've had to do that in myself. I've, I think human beings are adaptable. Um, I think whenever you're forced or made to change something, there's always resistance. Because why? 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 Like when we went into lockdown, my first two weeks, I resisted it. Oh, I'm missing sport. I'm missing being at grounds, and oh, I fought it. I fought something that wasn't going to change, and then you accept it, and then you like bed into it, and then it just kind of becomes part of your way of being. Um, and I and that's why I think you can, because whether it's a individual sport or a team sport, ultimately you want to do what's best for you to to. Um, be able to affect the outcome, whether that's within your team environment or the scoreboard. Nice, yeah. I'm hoping uh, the the pause for coaches during lockdown might be uh, something that changes a few habits. We'll we'll uh, <laughs> <going> to be seen. <laughs> that sounds like um, another podcast entirely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the um, you mentioned being the only black kid. I mean, clearly, Black Lives Matter stuff um, really prominent at the moment. I mean. What have been your experiences around that? Um, yeah, it's. I wouldn't say that I've. I mean, I've listened to so much, read loads. I was watching Sky Cricket yesterday, where Ebony Rainsford Brent were talking about it. Michael Holden. I just thought they were just incredible. And Ebony, I think you know, she perhaps suffered it on a day today, um, where I, I perhaps didn't. I think. It's also slightly hypocritical of me. Sometimes I actually feel uncomfortable talking about it, not because of the conversation, but because I know I've been or are, am in a privileged position. Um, I think once you show your worth and you're part of a team and it's all positive, people don't see colour. They just see you as a person that's playing for Harlequins or playing for England or, or doing whatever you do. So that almost eliminates and removes skin tone people have become colorblind but that's not to say i i've not received i remember playing for england under 21s once and i won't say where we're playing it's not fair but the coach all week was saying um it's going to be tough hostile environment hostile environment kept looking at me in in the meter and i was just like mate i'm focused like take your eyes off me like heads in the game desperate to win and then after it he said um you know, you're on the wing and the ground which you're playing at, like the spectators will be fairly close to you. So you might hear certain things, abuse and all that. I was like, oh, whatever. Then I got to the ground, didn't realise the proximity of the spectators to you. And I just, I got hammered that day. I got racially abused loads. And I was thinking, hang on, there's an assistant referee who stood there and he's not saying anything. Nothing happens and you're just trying to just focus on the game. And it's nuts because... Now I think there's a great awareness of it because my reaction at the end of it wasn't to say anything, not to do anything. I just, you packed your bags up, I couldn't wait to get out of there. I've not really suffered massive or, or, or any real extent of racism in, in, in rugby, I mean, on the field, but in terms of like stereotyping and biases and things like that, yeah, of course, loads. You know, got far straight onto the wing because... I was quick and athletic, and, and that is common sense. I'm certainly not saying that's, um, that, that's racist in any way. If you've got someone who's quicker than everyone in the team and speed is a prime commodity out on the wing, then why wouldn't you? But I guess from an early age, I would love younger coaches or, or coaches coaching younger kids, boys and girls, to experiment and allow them to try every position because I don't know why... Jeffrey, aged 11, was understood to have better decision-making than me when none of us even knew the game. So I think there's work that can be done there. But in society, that's, uh, oh, mate, I mean, I, I, I could speak for the next few hours on racial abuse that I get. And genuinely, that's on a weekly basis. Just happened last week. I mean, it's, and I'm talking about like overt, just point blank, undeniable racism. My biggest frustration with racism is that people, especially when it's 
these microaggressions, try and pick up racism and put it in a PC box. Let's be clear about it. In your mind, it might be PC because of what's been tolerated, but for the people that you're offending, it's most definitely racism. And the worst phrase known in rugby is, it's just banter. Well, if that makes yourself feel better, and if you're trying to project I've got a bad sense of humour, then I think you've got it slightly wrong. So, I mean, I, I could talk for a long while on it, and I know it's not the purpose of the podcast, but r- rugby's a very inclusive, very um, supporting, and supporting and welcoming world. It really is. I just don't think it reaches out to welcome people in. But once you're in, you're absolutely welcome. Yeah, true, true. And probably to tie that in as well with with females as well, quite frankly, in the men's game and lots of other things. And I think we're missing out on some, from a, just even from a cognitive diversity point of view, quite frankly. Uh, definitely something I've never kind of um, noticed or, or, or seen in my whole rugby career, but clearly it, it exists. And so I feel quite kind of sad about that. I love the way you speak about it. I actually love the way Fletch, you're Fletcher's favourite commentator, by the way, which, oh, is, a, which really is, a, oh. is a big shout. I mean, I don't that's think he really thinks it's good, but I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I mean, that, but even then, just the way you speak with such passion and you storytell and I mean, is this, I was thinking, do you do you practice? Do you did you were you like this when you start when you left the game and you became a commentator? No, not at all. But I think as I grew into my career, um, you play more games, you gain a bit more respect. Um, it allows you to talk about things from a position of authority, at least, or perceived authority um, with it within whatever setup and. The more I wanted to learn about the game, I didn't even realise that I enjoyed analysis, but I was always the guy that would ask coaches about, oh, have you seen this potential defensive deficiency? Or I think we could do this trick play or restarts or whatever it is, counter-attack, and ask those questions. I think coaches got fed up and was just like, right, I'll tell you what, next week you're going to do analysis. And it was more of a case of, right, if you think you've got know-it-all, but slightly kind of jokingly, tongue-in-cheek, and I did it and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I don't know, I think there's so many ways in which you can improve in the game. I was speaking to a 17-year-old player who's just not torn his Achilles tendon. And he was like, obviously, he's heartbroken. He's thinking, oh, this could be my career over. And I said, mate, there's so much you can develop that you would never have had the chance to develop had you were playing. Rugby's so cyclical, the pressure of selection, playing games, recovery. You can learn the game. You can absolutely tune in and learn the game you're not part of the first team but i tell you what if you know harlequins are playing against saracens at the weekend have a look go through their footage come back report to me tell me what they do well what you'd like to do more and where you can hurt them and where they could potentially threaten you so i developed that keenness to um oh sorry someone just rang uh developed that keenness to, to understand more um and that's kind of transferred and i guess my route into media was i mean you need the opportunity at the right time and the right time was there i was thinking about retiring had an opportunity sat down with nick mullins and he, his wife i think said to him prompted him he discussed and said that he thought i might be quite good at it but it wasn't so i i took some time out uh to um, do a few commentary games. And actually, the first thing I wanted to know was whether I'd enjoy it, because I had a 14-year career of pure enjoyment. I loved it. <laughs> like, your best mates, that stimulus, which which you get every single weekend, the jeopardy, all of it, the whole journey. And I've been relegated, part of Bloodgate, one of times. Do you know what I mean? Like, everything moulds you into the person that you are. So I just wanted to know that I enjoyed it, because if, if I knew that I'd enjoy it, I knew I could be good at it. Um, that was that was massive for me. So once I determined that I actually enjoyed it, then I like went to work hard at it. Um, um, and and I, honestly I love it. I think I genuinely think I've I've just got a brilliant job. Like I really do. It's genuine. It's like I mean since lockdown like I've, I've I've missed rugby. I've missed talking about it. I, I love being at the crowds, you know, there's lots of things that you that you lose when you play rugby. There's plenty of things you can gain. Um, one of the massive things I, I lost was 
as I said, that chemical stimulus, you almost like go cold turkey. Don't forget every Saturday you're in the change room, you're filled full of nerves and those nerves like morph into adrenaline and then the emotions of an 80 minute game. You go from that to nothing. Now, when I'm in commentary and like I've been lucky to be involved in some like great games and lots of crap ones, but I was, I was fortunate enough to be commentating at a World Cup. I never played at a World Cup, so this was the next best thing. My first game, Australia gets Fiji, and you know, you've got producer in your ear, director in your ear, and you're counting yourself down to from 10 to zero. And like, I've got genuinely, I've got goosebumps, like, because that was amazing. But like, that gets me excited, like, it gets me excited about what I'm going to do. But with that excitement, there's the responsibility because you're not just. And lots of people's opinions are just a couple of lads just chatting in the pub about rugby. If it sounds like it, we're doing a good job. <laughs> but there's a lot of work that goes into making us sound like we're just mates chatting in the pub. Yeah, I thought, uh, I loved it when you said the other week, you were talking about our kind of walk around the pitch, I get the sense, I see what's going on, I see what the coaches are doing. I was thinking, and you what, you put your boots on and you, you know, you were all... <laughs> You were feeling it again. You were like, and then I just start tackling people. And oh, then I realised I got commentators. And look, that, that definitely comes across. I think one of the questions, Fletch. I mean, one of something we were really, um, and why I, I love your commentary. Actually, I'll put you with Justin Marshall. I actually think you see possibility in the game. I, I, I would still contest, and it was something we tried to influence and failed. Um, I definitely think there's some commentary that isn't that helpful if you are, let's say you're a dad and you're, or a mum and you're listening and you're coaching on a Sunday and you hear, well, this has to happen like this. So therefore you yeah. go do it or, oh, that we should be, oh, right. So when, when mis lots of focus on mistakes on the, so we, we need to focus on mistakes with the kids as well. So I don't know what your thoughts are around that. Cause I think there'd be some, some real positive impact of, commentary that has possibility but also some unintended consequences of some stuff that is less possible yeah I, I completely agree and some of that's almost directed by potentially who um who you're commentating on so if you're commentating on a team that's full of structure then you often get embroiled in structure and just talking about phases and shapes and this and that but what you need to add to that, in my opinion, is the context as to why they do certain things and why there might be some security within structure and fluidity. But I'm aware of language. Like, we get un un unprompted feedback all the time through the means of social media. And some of the language we use, so if we see a big collision, a big tackle, and, oh, what a hit, some parents get offended by that because we're glorifying um, a big collision where it should be a big tackle. But there's a part of me, which is a kid, who does just get excited when he sees it. But I also understand that I'm not just talking to rugby fans. I'm, I'm also talking to kids and coaches and everything else like that. But I also don't swap myself into thinking about the audience because I don't want that to direct and perhaps erode away at my natural enthusiasm and I will make mistakes whether it's language or calls or whatever it is so I'll always just be me and that's fine um, and I've never commentated on a perfect game and I never will um, but I guess rugby is very unique in terms of the job it's got to do is the second most technical sport in the world and we have the least amount of time to talk about it you look at the NFL the most technical sport goes on for four hours and there's loads of breaks whereby you can say things in commentary have a break whether it's defense going into offense or vice versa where you can elaborate you've got cricket cricket you have two massive tea times where there's an hour an hour and a half where you can properly get into the detail and the context you have rugby and my job is to explain certain things and it's very rarely you hear a pundit in the commentary box talk for more than 30 seconds. So I have to explain intricate parts of the game um, and make that language colloquial and understandable, but also not sell myself short and not finish points. And that's really hard. And then you speak about the international game where we go from hundreds of thousands of viewers to watch a domestic game to millions of watchers, Six Nations. Two years ago, Elliot Daly, off his right hand, fizzed the ball across to Johnny May. That ball went forward three metres, but wasn't 
a forward pass. I've got to explain to someone who's a rugby flirt and watches six matches a year how that ball travelled forward but isn't a forward pass and the try was awarded. Now, I've got to do that in 15 seconds. It's, it's not that easy. So there are elements of the game which are just nuts. There's inconsistencies within the game and everyone has their own model and different way of playing. It's not like there is a blueprint to rugby and that's what we do. Um, of course, there's certain structures in terms of set-piece, kickoffs, conversions, things like that. That's just automatic. But the outcomes are very different and the approach is very different. So it's complex, it's difficult, but it's a great challenge. And it's what makes our jobs exciting because every game or within the game, you might see three styles of play. Like I always say Saracens, they have this incredible ability of changing gear seamlessly. First 20 minutes, suffocate, strangle, pressurise, feed off opportunities. Last 20 minutes often is defensive pressure, um, physicality, energy. They will change their tactics from the first quarter to the last quarter. In the middle, things open up. And I love that ability to do that. So all the thoughts I had in my mind about what Saracens are doing, they may be redundant after 20 minutes. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, mate, you're making it sound more complicated than it looks. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm mate, just trying to give myself a bit of an out. in right. your ears and stuff. What's the, and I never really thought about, like, I guess the reality of social media is you get pretty immediate feedback on stuff. What's the, what's the best? What's the worst? The, part of the best is obviously Fletch thinks you're his favourite commentator. But what is the best? Is there any stuff that's kind of, you know, that, that comes to your mind when talking about like this instant feedback on social media? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you get it constant, you get it throughout the game. And I remember my first season, I mean, the most natural and obvious one is you're biased. And the beauty is by the end of the season, I've been called biased against every single team, which by definition means that I'm actually not biased. And, um, and then with Quinns and my historic relationship with Quinns, it's if I say Quinns are good, I'm biased. If I say they're crap, then I'm a Judas and I'll have the players and the coaches on my back so you just can't win. What I realised in my first year was still how attached emotionally I was to certain players and to the team that I played for. And I found that actually quite difficult, but I had to learn. Although I felt as if I knew rugby, I didn't know broadcasting. And that's an art in itself. So I remember one game, it was probably earlier, I think maybe my first season, second season, go onto Twitter at halftime whilst the ad breaks are on. You're crap, you're this, you're that, you're that. Oh, can you stop talking about that? It changed the way I commentated in the second half. And from then on, like, I won't look at social media at half time because I'm, I'm genuinely not bothered about the, the 1% who has this opinion or build up this perception that I think certain things. So there's a core group of like Worcester fans that like just hate me because apparently I always give them a hard time and they've approached me after matches. And I, and I just say like genuinely, like the way I try to talk about rugby, I try and be positive. We've become glory supporters. We're like magpies. My eyes and my attention are focused to the best players doing the best things. And that's what I want to talk about. Your team has been in the bottom three of the Premiership in each of the last 10 seasons and relegated twice. You haven't won that many games for me to be overly zealous or excited about. It's, it's tough. I'm, I'm more likely to talk about the team that wins. I don't have, I don't hate Worcester. I've got really fond memories of playing there. England under 21s, incredible infrastructure there. But if I've commentated on you seven times in the season and you've lost six, as a supporter that is emotive and biased, your opinion of me is that I don't like you and I'm biased against you, but I can only talk about the things and the pictures that I see. And to a greater extent, what I've understood and learned is I'm more bothered about what my bosses think who help pay my mortgage than the supporter who thinks I'm biased and not doing my job. And it's the feedback which I crave from my peers and my, and, and my employers that's really important to me than someone who wants instant gratification by saying that I'm whatever um, or, on Twitter. Mate, it sounds so complicated. Glad I'm not a com oh, mate, it's just, but it's, it's, it's nuts, it's, it's nuts. But I'll have it with man the matches. I'll have players text me off. Oh, how have you given man the match? And I get that wrong. <laughs> really? I, I get that. Genuine. Why have you given him man the match? How have you done that? I, I remember I was, I was at a game last year. and This is like in the second half of the season before England selection for the World Cup. 
and I gave a playing man the match and I was like, oh, mate, that's a right stitch-up. That's a right stitch-up. Mate, he's going to be on the front covers of the papers. They're going to be loving off him. I know everyone loves him at the moment, but, like, mate, you stitched me. I'm like, mate, like, he scored a try to assist. Like, he was brilliant. Like, what? literally, what do you want me to do? <laughs> like, like, what do you want me to do? But, so there's all of that, but it's actually just interesting. It's funny. It's it generally doesn't affect me. I will still say and call things as I see it. I, the words that come out of my mouth are led by the pictures I see on the pitch and nothing else. Nice. I mean, now I know it's, I'm able to, to abuse you on Twitter. I might start. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Tell me about Quinns. So um, let's talk about the highs. So let's talk about you win the league in 2012. Yeah. You had like high number of, English qualified players, high number of people come yeah. from the academy. One of the big themes around uh, that Aaron spoke about on Friday was identity, which is clearly like on my mind a lot at the moment. And yeah. my sense would be that that team would have an identity, a way of playing. I remember once driving into your training grounds with England Sevens then and, and just watching you training, almost stopping and just watching you guys train and thinking, that looks just like the way they play at the weekend and they look like they're having fun and they look really well connected. Um, tell me about those times and then we'll do the relegation stuff after it, yeah? Yeah, it, it was amazing. Genuinely, we, we were lucky to have a guy like Connor, Connor O'Shea come in. He's got an incredible record and empathy and understanding of working with young talent, UK sport, now come back into the RFU and that's what we were. We were just a, a young bunch of talented players, perhaps with no direction. The one thing he did have to instill in us was a camaraderie um, or a culture because when you've got a high percentage of your team that you've grown up together with and been through the highs and the lows together, it, it's there. You still have to work at it, but it was there. The fundamentals were most definitely there. Um, so he looked at the team and we trained. Um, we trained as we wanted to play. We wanted to have a high-tempo game. We weren't. We didn't feel like... We wanted to be in arm wrestles every single week, but also we wanted to do things that we knew we'd enjoy, but it couldn't just stop at enjoyment. It had to then equate to success. Um, and lots of us had been given opportunities in the championship to develop. And as desperate a time as that was, that was the, that was the birthplace for so many of the guys that you'd have seen over a number of years. So Chris Rogers, Mike Brown, to Joe Myers, Jordan Turner Halls, George Lowe's, Danny Cares, and all the rest of it. Mark Lambert's incredible. George Robson. So, as soon as we, as soon as we, I, sorry, as soon as we identified how we wanted to play, we all just bought into it, and we just loved it. We loved it. And the other thing is, it's amazing people's perceptions of teams, um, and perceptions can become your reality if you allow it to be or it can become your own weapon. So we were these champagne swigging, young, like, London rogues. And we loved it. We loved it. Because to a certain extent, yeah, we were. So we're like, bring it on. If that's what you think of us, we played up to it. We loved it. We lived it. It was amazing. And we had so many talented players who hadn't quite reached their level. And I guess um, part of the success was we were probably just on the cusp of being England players or Nick Easter was actually establishing English players, but we only really had one master. We had a couple of masters that we wanted to have, our current one and an England one, so there wasn't ever a diluted message. We were just focused on Quinns, Quinns, Quinns to get to England, to be successful for Quinns to get to England. And that was great and that was actually really helpful. So, um, yeah, we loved, we loved the way we played, but a lot of the success we got in 2012 came off the back of 2011. So we had this style of play, this brand, which we dubbed Quinn style. And I felt at that point we, we changed the game a little bit in the Premiership. But winning the Amelin Cup in 2011, that was the tangible evidence that we needed to know that it worked. And then there was a bit of pain, a bit of hurt as well. So 2012, well, 2012, so 2011 was the World Cup. I wasn't selected. Danny Kerr got injured in the last warm-up game and didn't go to that World Cup. Chris Robshaw didn't go. I was angry. Like, I felt as if I should have been there. And you've got two choices, to sulk about it or prove a point. So we were, like, energised and wanted to prove a point. 
and I think we end up winning our opening 10 games, but we did it the way we wanted to do it. We did it with smiles on our face, enjoyment, by being able to actually express ourselves. And I always tell this story, but I remember Conor O'Shea's first team talks, he came into the change room and uh, two minutes before we go out, you know, every coach just wants to say just the final message. was like, guys, I don't care about the result. And I was like, who the heck have we signed? He doesn't even care if we win. Like, <laughs> who is this bloke? Like, oh my gosh, we've never had success. And now we've employed this bloke who doesn't even care about the result. He went on to say, I just care about your processes. We've trained well. I just want you to go out, do your job, go and express yourselves, have fun. That's the only thing he ever measured us by. And quite quickly, you understand what he meant because we knew we had some key performance targets that we knew if we did, I think there was three ones, defence, our attack outcome, and maybe our set piece. We knew if we hit those numbers, we would win. The evidence was there. I think only once that there was an anomaly with that. So we just focused ourselves in terms of three things on the pitch that we just knew we had to do and drill it. And we were top of that season and right throughout the season and end up finishing in a brilliant way but the one thing people don't ever credit us for was our defense and John Kingston has always said this and I, I, I truly believe in him he says your defensive attitude is a representation of how you feel and what you mean to one another because that's just about graft and work of course there's tactical and technical pieces within it but in terms of fundamentals sometimes you've just got to get off the floor you know, we always spoke about it in terms of no talent required. It doesn't take talent to flip and run hard and chase a kick or to work back or to get in line and get up off the floor. And our defence was exceptional that year. I think we conceded one try our first phase all season. And so we had this collective group. And there'll be other teams with just as good a squad, just as good players, um, good coaches, S&C. But the one thing we knew we couldn't be beaten on was our was our culture and our and our camaraderie and our togetherness? We couldn't be beaten, we just couldn't, and and we won't. Um, and how aware were you that you were changing the game? Because my memory is, and I'm probably more focused on the attack, but you were playing a a brand of rugby, an attacking brand of rugby, where you were keeping the ball alive. It was high tempo. There was multiple people scoring. The ball was all over the pitch um, and other people were struggling with it. How aware were you that, that you were changing the game? And I'm, I'm also thinking like, so that was 2012. Like what was then the legacy of that? Yeah. Um, two really good questions. We were absolutely aware. I think the further into the season we got, it didn't matter who we were playing. Like, <laughs> I mean, and, and we were, we were young and we were dumb and we were like idiotic at times. We, we've got mates all around the Premiership and they'd ring us on a Tuesday, Wednesday, trying to get information on the team. And we were so confident in who we are and our ability on the pitch. We'd say, you know what's coming, don't you? And they'd be like, yeah, we're like, you don't know how to stop it, do you? We're going to win. I know we're coming to a patch, <laughs> but genuine, we're going to win this weekend. That was the like, unshakable belief that we had. So we knew that oppositions feared it. Um, and because an inverted commas feared it, well, they couldn't work it out. And for me, that was that was new. So it was a tactic or it was a game plan which perhaps existed, but perhaps not to that global extent to play right throughout the winter, into the spring, and then into the summer. And people didn't really have an answer to it. We we lost, I think, five games that season. Fine, not a problem. We'll take it. Um, so we were absolutely aware. In terms of the legacy of it, that's the point or that's the place where I think Quinns let themselves down because it's great having success. Of course it is. But what's more meaningful is sustained success and how do you get that? Um, um, and there's lots of different thought processes with regards to that in terms of um, the squad in terms of players that left to go to other places, in terms of players that stayed and were getting older. Alex Ferguson said, don't ever let a squad like grow old together. That's exactly what we did. Um, but I think there was this belief that because the culture and everything was there, that if we let certain personnel go, that perhaps we couldn't still be the same. 
and we just didn't evolve in the way that Quinn should have. They've not been in a semi-final, been in a playoff place for, for seven years now. Not won anything since 2013, I think. You know, that's that's quite a chasm in terms of 2011, 2012, 2013. I think we won four trophies in three years. They're nothing. So have other teams caught up and um, moved on? I think some of that's actually driven by the international game. Because you remember like the success that Wasp and Leicester had in the early 2000s. And that was on physicality, set piece and defence. And every team wanted to copy that. And success bleeds into the system. And so you end up looking at what are the best teams and players and coaches doing at the top of the game, international European, um, international European and domestic game. We need to now do that. So I think other teams certainly expanded their game but they, lay, they added layers on top of it. In fact, Saracens did the total opposite. We had this expansive game, they tightened things up. But then you look at the, the people, the personnel that influenced that, they had quite a big South African contingent. South Africa had huge success in 2007 off a kicking game in defence. That became their foundation. But quite clearly, they've opened their game up and can score and defend any, any way that, 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 that they want. Yeah, look, I... Um... Yeah, I've been chatting a couple of your players probably oh, how long ago, four or five years ago, about this and said, look, what? And, and, and one of the things I do think is that people think, cult, you know, you can often just kind of cut and paste a culture or the blueprint and yeah. we've got it now and, and this will work. And then actually one of your players said, we're just different players to where we were in 2012. We were young, free, single, and now we've got kids and... And it's and it's it's just a different context. So, and, and, and I wrote it down when you said it. You said you know and we and we spent time working on our culture. So, what was that? What did that look like? Some of it was just pure coincidence, locality. So, like two of my best mates, Jordan Turner Hall and Danny Kerr, we lived one minute apart from one another. Um, London's quite a tough place in terms of. So, if you look at like Northampton, not a massive town, Leicester, the same, Gloucester, Exeter where there's a density of population of people who are actually fairly local to the clubhouse, to the ground, whatever. It's easy to get together. In London, well, we were spread apart from all the way down in Surrey, all the way up to Putney and Wandsworth. So getting together um, became a little bit more difficult. And you pointed it out. I mean, we were young, we were single. I think we had one kid in the whole squad during that year. So like, yeah, being able to hang... That's it, what it is. Less kids, you needed less kids. Do you know what I mean? Then the, the, the squad grows up, you have kids, it's harder, to, it's in inverted commas, harder to find time, but there is time. I think there's always time within a week. It's just whether you appreciate that time and where you actually um, put, uh, or, or where you prejudice your time. If more time spent on the training pitch and not spend actually getting to know one another and understanding what we are and actually just evolving as human beings, as players, um, as systems, as technically everything else, I think that stopped. Um, and that's just not Quinn's. I think that's lots of different teams in the Premiership. You've seen it. You just wonder as to why. And it's something that Aaron spoke about. You know, it's that chasm between uh, potential and actually being able to perform. And I look at not just individuals, I look at teams. I'm like, hey, by the way, if sport was played on paper, it'd be dead boring. But I look at certain like teams and I think, you've got everything. <laughs> all the tools, all the tools to to dominate this league, to be really competitive year in, year out. Like, why aren't you more? But then I look at someone like Sale and I think what they've done over the last year is a really good combination of using their academy, given opportunities. In terms of answering the culture, you know, I think lots of teams are actually formed in the vision of their of the man in charge, Steve Diamond, combative, like uncompromising figure. He's got a set of curries. He's got the Dupree brothers. Um, he's got the Jameses. I mean, you've got seven guys all from three families who are always involved in that 22. Like, if you build it around that camaraderie in itself, you've got lots of South Africans have been that as well. And that's not saying that's good or it's bad. I mean, it works. 
So you have to identify what your squad makeup looks like, where they are in their careers, and actually what success looks like to certain individuals within the teams. I was having this conversation just the other day. Success to each individual in the team looks different based on how they got into the game, some of the challenges that they faced. If you're Owen Farrell and your dad's one of the greatest rugby legends, Great Britain's and Ireland's ever seen in both codes, there's a pressure, a weight of expectation, and automatically his projections for what success would look like might be very different to the guys come into um, come into rugby in a slightly more unorthodox route. I came from like single mother, five kids via a private school into the game. Success might look very different for me, but when you're within a team environment, success or the things you want to achieve has to be the same for some. It might be just getting a first team contract. Happy days. Made it because no one on my block did anything. Going home, like that might feel like success. To others, you're selling yourself short. So I think it's very, and it kind of goes back to what we're talking about at the start. Understanding the human being to understand their motivation, the things they want to achieve, and actually what being part of this team or part of this game really means for them. Yeah, and it sounds, and what I hear from lots of people is that Connor would be really focused on people and humans, and yeah, right. and, no, and, like, and he did an unbelievable job with that group of he players. He did. I mean, my coaches that I look back and loved, Colin Osborne, I forever love him, and, and like he gave my first opportunity, and he knew about he knew about me, he knew about my life, he knew about everything. Andy Friend, you had him on a podcast recently, I listened oh, to it, and you. I love that bloke. Like, he's just a good bloke. Like, he's just a good human being. He's just a good bloke. Like, absolutely love him. Conor O'Shea, another one, because they invested in the teams and the tactics and everything else as they much as they did into you. I had other coaches, John Kingston, another guy, deeply passionate for the team, the club, and, you know, he cared. So I cared for him. I think sport and life is a game of... Whatever you, whatever you put in, you, you generally get out. But don't put it in because you're expecting something back. That's not how it works. Just be willing just to go all in. And those coaches that I look at and loved or love, um, I had an emotional connection with them. Sean Edwards, another one. Like, I went onto the pitch. I mean, I feared the bloke because he's mad, but he's unbelievable. But I knew he took things personal. I didn't want to make a, I didn't want to miss a tackle for Sean. I didn't, because number one, he'd tear me apart on Monday, but also he cared, and he let us know he cared. And I think it's really important to let players know that and show it. Yeah, what, um, and what about your international experiences? So, you know, Fletch said to me, why didn't he get more England caps? Uh, yeah. Also, there's a, you know, what, what was this? Clearly, I would, you know, be able to tell you your strengths, uh, and people would be aware of your strengths. What were the bits of your game that limited you? And, 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 and when we talked about Aaron, was, was that part of it? And actually, did you feel like you had support in those areas? To, I mean, could Hugo have been even better? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, short answer, absolutely. Could I have won more caps? Yeah. Did I have the talent to win more caps? 100%. 100%. And this is not me kind of all oh, back in my days, like, you know, reflecting. That's just my genuine belief. Like, 100%, I should have got more caps. I could have. I hampered myself and there was other contributing factors, but I think it's important to look at yourself. And I think there was points in my career where I just became too comfortable. I've got this like 10% rule. If you lose a 10% hunger, desire, motivation, a focus, like, mate, I'll tell you what, it's bloody hard to get it back because we have the largest player pool in the world and the competition's absolutely fierce. So if you're at 90 and that bleeds into your training, your approach, your detail and things like that. And there's other guys out there who are hungry. Sean Fitzpatrick always says it. You know, train like you're number two. Always train like you're number two. Who were the, hungry lads? Who were the hungriest lads you played with? Mike Brown, 100% the most competitive <laughs> player I've ever played with. And people confuse his passion for anger and it's like utter nonsense. You know, I look at, I remember when, do you remember when Wayne Rooney scored that goal against Newcastle? It was like mid-arguing arguing with the referee. The ball comes to him and just smashes it into the top left-hand corner. And it's just raw emotion. Some people are, oh, he's angry, he's unhinged. But Brownie, I tell you what, 
he has got every ounce of talent out of himself after being knocked back and set back and he can't do this and he can't do that. But he's the most capped fullback England have ever had. Unbelievable player, but all driven by his personality. He's just, just got it. I didn't have that far, not consistently enough, because there's a big difference between talent and, and desire and drive. If you can link and merge those two together, with an understanding, like you've got the full package. But to operate on an international level, you need both of those things at all times. And I just didn't. I just didn't. Um, could I've ever had them? Yet yeah. I said you can change and change habits and behaviours. Um, so that's me, like self-reflecting on myself. Like I let myself down a little bit, and I'm disappointed at that. Um, and there was like key moments in my career. So going on the Lions tour was just amazing to be exposed by the best coaches, being surrounded by the best players and and just learning, absorbing and, you know, my journey on that tour wasn't plain sailing. You, you know, you reach a peak of being selected in the first test, first test, have a couple of bloopers in the game and all of a sudden, within 80 minutes, what's the best moment of your life? You know, like fearing that you're going to be dropped and I was dropped and then finishing on the high like I did was amazing. So, it was emotionally and physically draining but like quite simply, the best thing and best experience I've ever had in my rugby life and one of the best moments I've had. We've got children obviously. I've got, I've got children, I mean yeah. they're asleep and they don't listen to this pod <laughs> so yeah the best moment of my life okay. Um, but off the back of that I remember the Autumn Internationals, I got picked to play fullback because Mike Brown was injured, I played I think six games at fullback just filling in doing a job, Stu Lancaster like picking at fullback and he asked me if I wanted to play fullback, and I was like, I just want to play for England. Like, yeah, yeah, of course I'll play there. And I had the worst game of rugby I've ever had in my whole life. I'm talking from age grades through premiership to international. It was awful. Against Argentina, if you fancy a laugh, Google it, it's there for you. And I'm not, I'm not embarrassed by it. I've still got the jersey from that game because sports can be very humbling, and I think it's really important to... to to humble yourself sometimes you know I've got great memories and jerseys and um, memorabilia from all the good days but why wouldn't you recognize some of the from some of the bad days as well and that was a bad day in the office like really bad it did press straight after when I've had a shocker but this is where I would have loved an hour in my life because it took me far too long to get over that you have to grieve you have to grieve you know I was you know, I had a terrible game on a huge platform in front of a lot of people. There's no hiding place. The next week we played the All Blacks and I played on the wing. Thank God I didn't play at fullback again. But I was running from like my fears a little bit. You know, one of my strengths in rugby was my air and ability. I, I felt I was dominant. Like, if there was a high ball going up, I promise you, even now, I, I, I watch games and I'm like, technically they're doing things wrong. Like, I, I, I do some work with some younger kids on aerial skills and it's a real bugbear of mine when I watch some aerial skills in the premiership even at the international level I don't quite get it it was something I prided myself on so feeling like one of your super strengths is now become one of your biggest weakness um you have this inner turmoil and that like that was like drowning me and I made so many um aerial <laughs> skills who did help you with it at the time or was it something you were processing I don't really think I addressed it. I just got on because there was always another game. There was always another review. I didn't really talk about it. That's not to say there weren't good people around me, but it wasn't a case of, like, people send you messages or the rest of it. Your mum still tells you you should have been man of the match, even though, like, you didn't deserve to be in the team. Um, but I didn't fully address, like, address it. I didn't fully deal with it. And that uh, meant that my form dropped and my confidence dropped and... I wouldn't say I was solely a confidence player, but you need confidence when you're on the wing to seek opportunities and try things and express yourselves. But I struggled with that. Um, then you go from that into, like I said, you know, other players like Chris Ashton was on fire for a couple of years and should have had opportunities earlier in the team. He's on fire. And all of a sudden, you're now number two or number three. And it's quite hard to get yourself back into it. Um, so that was, for me, that was a big moment off the back of like success in the summer, playing in the autumn. Um, and yeah, having to deal with that. I, I wish I could have dealt with it in a more 
abrasive manner. I think it would have helped me and my game, my contributions to teams that I played in. Um, I got it back, got over it, and you know, I'd always bat myself in the air even now. But yeah, that that was a big moment where I like, I suffered. Yeah, I really suffered. What about uh, the relegation? So, what was the impact of that on that squad? Obviously, it's it's tough, it's tough. stuff I'm hearing is that it probably brought the club together. Um, lots of young players got opportunities. You probably went back to the what the what rugby's really about and connected and on bus trips away to Otley and pubs on yeah. the back and things like that. That's what I've heard. Yeah, it grounded us. I mean. On a personal level, I'd just been selected on England tour, so that was 05. Obviously, the Lions went, and there was a big uh, England contingent which allowed opportunities for likes of me to go on the Saxons tour to Canada. So I, that was my first introduction to England. So I felt my career was on an upward trajectory, and my club career was doing something else. Like I didn't want to stop the momentum. I wanted to play in the in in the Premiership, and I chatted with Mark Evans the CEO at the time and Dean Richards and if I could have left I would have left I wasn't allowed to leave so I'm not going to make out that I was thrilled but once the decision was made you get over it but it did it grounded you it rooted you a little bit being in the championship it allowed us to explore and figure out who we were and it coincided with Dean coming in and Dean often gets like lost um as part of the history of why we then became successful, because he brought a, a steel to us. Um, he recruited well. His, um, he was clearly focused on his strengths and our weaknesses and where we could get better. And we'd always had electric backs and always had flair, whatever that means. But we didn't really have the level of physicality in a forward pack um, for us to be consistent it is a big part of the game and Dean brought us into us but I loved it we had we had Andre Voss as our captain and generally you won't find better <laughs> leaders I remember one game I've forgotten where we were but it was a long bus trip back and it was always a case of right we've got another five points in the showers which weren't often great get out of there and on the bus as quick as we can and they'd often be like pizza on the back of the bus and a few beers would have a good sing song and have a, have a good time so I was one of those guys bang in the shower onto the bus anyway everyone's on the bus where's Vossi don't know where Vossi is where's Vossi get off the bus walk into change room and he's there sweeping up the sheds I was embarrassed mate this is a guy who's captained this country how many times the leader of our team one of the most senior guys and he was doing what was right he wasn't live streaming it on Instagram to show what a great humble bloke he was. No one would have known. He'd have just got on the bus, sorry guys, I'm late. But he did that because that was right. But that was the measure of the man. He was a proper warrior. Um, and we had Andrew Mertens at Fly Off, and he's just like <laughs> absolute genius. I remember he turned up his first day at Quinn's, you know, body fat testing, all the rest of it, calipers are out. And I knew about Mertz, you know, he's this legend, all black, number 10, big money signing, going to sort us out. And he took his top off and I was like, who dad is this? I think someone's dad's lost in the physio room because like, his body comp composition wasn't the best. But my word, he could run a game and read a game. And that was an illustration of the difference between Northern Hemisphere attitudes and Southern Hemisphere attitudes. We were ripped to pieces, could bench, you know, 180, all the rest of it. We've got this lad who was probably carrying too much body fat. His legs were tiny, but he had this genius and this brain and the skill set that none of us could match. And quite clearly for me, and, you know, speaking far too broadly now, down in the Southern Hemisphere in New Zealand, they spend all their time catching, running, passing, kicking. And we just became these CrossFit champions that couldn't do the things that he could do. Um, and yeah, his influence, the Will Greeners of this, of this world, Tony Thipros, we had a great team. So we knew we had a confidence that we'd win, probably for the first time in a long time. So it allowed us to focus on other things, like actually just having really good fun. Nice. What are your hopes for when rugby comes back? What do you want, Hope? I, I really want a, a genuine excitement. I think... 
everyone life's been put on pause but it's actually accelerated a lot of thinking it's given us an opportunity to reflect i want to see um, a real positive attitude on the pitch. I want players to go out and express themselves. You can't be locked up for four months and then not go onto the pitch and express yourself. Like, yeah. come on, come on, like, surely. So I really want to see there an appetite. I've said in terms of an attitudinal sense, I think there's certain things that bled into the game that I don't like. Back chat to refs, goading, those levels of behaviours, because as much as it's a sport and it's a game that's competitive, it's professional, but... You're also role models, like kids watch it, everyone watches the game. So just just better behaviours on the pitch. Um, but I, I can't wait. I can't wait to go back and see what it will be like because I don't feel like it's a continuation of this season. I really feel as if it's a, a nine-game season and anyone can win it. And I hope that excitement and opportunity really... Um, manifests itself in the way in which people actually approach it. Nice. Well, I'm excited that you're excited that people might be excited. <laughs> I'm, going to do, uh, I'm going to do the one-worders. I could speak to you all day. Unfortunately, we both have stuff to do. Uh, one-worders, just one word, whatever comes straight to your head. Uh, Conor O'Shea. Oh, one word. Um... Like legend, legend. He is, he is. I love him. Danny Kerr. Cheeky. Uh, Dean Richards. Tough. I thought you were going to say steel. Uh, yeah. Quinns. Inconsistent. England. Josh. Oh, opportunity. Uh, Lions. I mean, that, that's so hard. That's so hard. I mean, everything. Like, it's just everything. Nice. Rugby. Oh, I love this. Ah. Speak so much. To put it in one word is class. I love it. Rugby. Oh, what is rugby? Um, I could talk to you about it after, but um, I can explain what it means, but the one word I'll use is compass. Cool. Pick it up with you later. Family. Why? They're my reason why. Mate, I, c I can't do any more because we have to end on that one. Mate, it's been a pleasure. Really appreciate your love time. It. Love you jumping on on a Friday. Tomorrow we're doing Super Rugby. So we're watching Super Rugby clips and coaches are talking about it. So we'll get some inside from you as well remind me to send you the link i'm bound to forget but uh <laughs> I'll, I'll text you later but mate thank you so much january for having me on and actually more importantly having me on the fridays because it's um it helps me i feel like just from the one conversation that i'm seeing i mean it, it won't actually project in terms of how i talk about the game but that's my hope i feel like I, i'm seeing rugby in a, in a greater depth but I'm seeing it in 4D. Um, that's, because, that's cool. I like that. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's great. And I think more people who are part of the game need to just like plug themselves in. Like you can't be afraid to have conversations and think outside your bubble and actually just like, even if you think you're certain about it, just, just question it, question it by someone else. Um, just, just, I think on your on your group chats like one question leads to an answer which leads to another five questions which <laughs> yeah. is just brilliant do you know what I mean we're always peeling back wallpaper mate it's been a pleasure have an awesome day and uh, i'll catch you i'll see you tomorrow morning cheers mate thanks thanks cheers, a lot. Dude.